Thank you, Megan. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, the God of light and of life itself. We thank you for the light that you've given us in Christ, in the incarnate word, in your inspired word, that by that light we can see, see reality, see ourselves, see you. Lord, we thank you that your light has dawned, that we can take courage in this darkness, and confident that one day the darkness will be overcome. Lord, help us to see Christ clearly in your word now. Give us divine aid to understand these divine words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Don and Jane Courtney, members here, if you don't know them, longtime missionaries, uh, while they were bringing the light of the gospel to the Kitchi in South America, they would sometimes encounter thick darkness. Not spiritual darkness, but literal pitch black darkness. Sometimes while visiting a nearby village, they'd work past sunset and have to find their way back to the car, which would be at least a football field away, in total darkness. This isn't like Austin darkness, where light pollution from downtown and street lamps and cell phones with flashlights on them mean that we're never really without light. We're never really in total darkness. This is can't-see-your-hand-in-front-of-your-face darkness. It's not like losing power in your house at night and you kind of stumble around, but you know your house like the back of your hand so you can feel your way. This is being caught in the jungle, not knowing which step's going to lead you off the path, not knowing what's making that noise, not knowing if that growl is coming from a mile away or feet away. So precious is light in a situation like that, that the solution the Courtney's and their group found was to have one of their companions strap a generator on his back and make their way in the light that that generator produced to their car. I don't know how big generators were 40 years ago, but I would imagine that that was quite a feat. But when you're in utter darkness, light is invaluable. It's absolutely necessary. It's quite literally life-saving. Paul's defense before Agrippa and Festus is a story about light shining in the darkness. It's about light dawning in the life of Paul. And we'll see that though Paul is a very unique messenger of light, his story is very much our story. His calling is very much our calling. As Paul was a witness to the light of the resurrected Christ, so now we, the church, are called to bear witness to the light. 
We're called to bring light to a dark world. We're called to open blind eyes. We, like Paul, are called to be witnesses of light in a dark world. To a world that can't see the hand in front of their faces. That doesn't know what danger they're in. That lives in fear and anger and rebellion. In the dark world, the church is a witness to the light. That's where we'll be heading this morning. We'll start off by looking at the context of this speech, and we'll look at the contents of the speech. So bear with me for a few minutes as we look at the context, which I think is really important to understand the purpose of what's going on here, to understand what Paul's saying and why Luke's included this, as we'll see, this third recounting of Paul's conversion, the really fifth or sixth defense Paul's made in the last couple chapters of Acts that says almost the same thing every time. I think the context here is important. We'll see with the context that Paul's defense in this chapter isn't really much of a defense at all. The chapter right before in 25 gives us some important context. So look there with me. Look at the last paragraph in 25. Start in verse 23 and follow along with me. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came to, with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. When Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Paul's innocent. Festus knows this. Now Agrippa, the Jewish king, hears this and is told and is made aware of this. They know this before the speech, and nothing changes after. Look down at the end. Hear what Megan just read. In verse 30, Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So we see that Paul's not really defending himself here. He doesn't need to. He's not really on trial. The hearing's just there so Festus can write something to Caesar. So if this isn't much of a defense, what is it? Well, what this speech is, First, is a fulfillment of Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. Acts 9, 15, uh, Christ tells Ananias about Paul. He says, but the Lord Jesus says to Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So in Acts, we've already seen Paul carry the name of Jesus, to the Gentiles. He's carried it to the people of Israel. He's gone on missionary journeys. 
He's gone into synagogues. He's gone before the, the high priest. Uh, so he's done all that already. Now he's bringing his name before a king, before Agrippa. So this is a direct fulfillment of Acts 9.15. This speech is also the final step in fulfilling the final verse from last week's passage. In, in Acts 23.11, uh, the following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So this is fulfilling, speaking before a king, and it's really the final step in getting Paul to Rome to fulfill Acts 23, 11. Paul understands that God's sending him there to Rome. He understands clearly by this point in Acts that the way he'll get to Rome is in chains. From the last few chapters, God's made it clear through visions and prophecies that Paul is going to be arrested in Jerusalem, and he is, and that that's how he'll be able to proclaim his name in Rome. So Paul, understanding this, says, I appeal to Caesar. This is granted that he'll get to go directly to Caesar, where he'll be tried there. Uh, he's evoking this apparent right that Roman citizens had, that Festus is quite evidently honoring. But this is how God's providentially bringing Paul, bringing the message of the gospel, the message of the risen Christ, to Rome. And before that great king, Agrippa is very much a, uh, a puppet king. He's a king in a real sense. But this is how God's going to get the gospel before in one sense, the king of the known world, the emperor, Caesar. So Paul, confident in God's promise, confident in God's providence, again, isn't making a defense to try and get free, to try and get loose. He sees that this is how he's getting to Rome. Neither is Paul fearful for his life. He's not here defending himself, trying to get out of a death sentence. He's told the Ephesians elders in chapter 20, that he doesn't count his life of any value. This isn't a man fearfully defending himself, trying to get free because he doesn't want to die. He says, I am very willing to die for this cause. So much so that in chapter 21, after he meets with the Ephesians, he's on his way back to Jerusalem. All his friends are saying, you're going to be arrested. Don't go to Jerusalem. They all want to kill you. He rebukes them. Similarly, the way Jesus rebukes his disciples, Paul rebukes his friends and says, stop trying to get me not to do this. I'm going. So Paul has no intention of defending himself to be free. Paul's less of a defendant here and more of a witness. Paul is less a defendant and more of a witness. That's how he sees himself. You can find that word a couple times in this passage. In verse 16, You'll see him use that word witness. And then a form of the same word in verse 22, that word testifying, is the, uh, the root is the same word as witness. So in this trial, Paul isn't the defendant. He's a star witness for the risen Christ. This is in many ways the climax of Acts. This is the message that Paul, an apostle of Christ, has for kings, for Gentiles, and Jews, for all who will hear him. Again, it's the third time he's told his conversion. 
It's the fifth or sixth speech in this section of Acts that he's given. And this is the most full and comprehensive one of all of them. They've all kind of been building to this great speech before Agrippa. Really, the whole book of Acts is flowing up to this point. The resurrected Christ, from the very beginning in chapter 1, has said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Look at verse 22 here with me. Look at verse 22. To this day, Paul says, I have had the help that comes from God, the power of the Spirit, and so I stand here testifying, witnessing. He's fulfilling Acts 1.8. Paul's been called to testify. And so he does. He testifies to the light of the risen Christ. And here in this court setting, Paul gives a testimony. He bears witness. He makes, in other words, an official statement regarding the truth. That's what a witness does. They tell the truth about what they've seen. Paul's not the defendant here. He's a star witness proclaiming the truth about the risen Christ. So let's now look at this testimony in two parts. Darkness from verses 4 to 12, and light from verse 13 to the end. Darkness from verses 4 to 12. Though the word darkness isn't used in these verses, the contrasts between Paul's life after seeing the literal light of Christ and before, I think that contrast can rightly be described as darkness and light. We see the darkness of Paul's life in his rebellion and his insanity. We see the darkness of Paul's life in his rebellion and insanity. Rebellion against God and insanity in denying the reality that God's revealed. Paul starts his speech like many of his other speeches. He talks about his Jewishness. He was a a Jew of Jews raised and trained as a Pharisee, the strictest party of his religion. It would be like being a Texan of Texans, born into an oil family in Dallas, spent summers on a cattle ranch, sent to UT to study Texas history, and then voted in as a state senator. So in one sense, Paul here is building up his own credibility. He's lived according to what's been revealed to him. He's lived according to what light he's had. He says in one of his letters that the Jews have many advantages. They have the scriptures, the oracles of God. They have rites and ceremonies that have given them some measure of light. And Paul thinks he's lived according to that. God's given all people some light, but especially the Jews. Look at verses 6 through 8 with me. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you 
that God raises the dead. The truth, the light that Paul's focusing here on is the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection. A true Jew, Paul's saying, has no problem believing the resurrection, that the dead can and will be raised to life. Again, if Paul were just defending himself, going into talking about doctrine and theology wouldn't be the best move, probably. But he does. This is the cornerstone of his case in many ways. Resurrection is clearly promised in the Old Testament. Daniel 12.2 might be the most clear promise of this. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting content. Isaiah 26, likewise, after a promise of death being swallowed up forever, the prophet says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And perhaps most famously, Ezekiel prophesies, talking about the resurrection, saying, Then he, God, said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The hope of resurrection isn't just found in a few verses, a few proof texts in the Old Testament. It's baked into the very essence of what it means for us to be alive. These prophecies only reveal that resurrection life is a hope that's at the very core of all of our lives. So apart from the hope of resurrection, all other hopes, any promises God's made, any of the desires that you sitting here this morning have are utterly meaningless. If all there is is this life only, then none of our lives matter much. If all that awaits us is emptiness and nothingness, if none of us will remember any of this, if the entirety of human existence is just a blip on the infinite timeline of the universe, then nothing matters. If in 50 years, or 50,000 years, or 50 million, if in that time none of us exist anymore, and all the events of our lives fade into nothingness as the universe winds down into some cold death, then none of your sins, none of your good deeds, none of your pain, none of your pleasure, none of it matters at all. But our lives are filled with meaning. 
we have a deep sense that all of us, all of this matters. We can't help but know that Roy's life matters, that Faye's life matters, that your life matters. That's how you live, as though it matters, that what causes you support, that who you help, that what you want to do for the rest of your life matters. What you do matters because your life matters, because it won't end. The Bible's clear that all of us will be raised from the grave, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting punishment. All will be raised. From the very beginning of creation, God's held this out to us as a reward, everlasting life. As Adam was placed in the garden with a tree of life, so the hope of everlasting life was implanted in the heart of man. Although death now reigns, although all of us are going to face the grave, should Christ tarry, the hope, the promise of eternal life is still there, still held out to us as it was to Adam. Think for a second about the horrible lives of God's people in the Old Testament. From the wandering Abraham to the hectic life of Jacob, to the generations of slaves in Egypt, to faithful prophets wandering about Jerusalem, being ignored by most, and being stoned or sawn in half. Think about their lives. If God promised to be good and merciful to them, and if those promises have any meaning whatsoever, then these Old Testament saints were surely waiting for something beyond this life. They were waiting on the God who gives life to raise the dead to life. Why is it thought incredible by anyone that God raises the dead? God's a God of life. He is life. He is existence itself. And He gives life. He gives life where there was no life before. From breathing life into dust to create Adam, to raising a widow's son to life through the prophet Elisha, God gives life. This idea of resurrection, then, should be absurd to no one. Not to the pagan Gentiles who know by nature that God exists. And certainly not to the Jews, not even to the Sadducees, as we heard the other week. If they believe Genesis 1 is true, they should have no problem believing that the resurrection is true. God is able to raise the dead to life. It's the hope of the Jewish people. It's the hope of all mankind. But it's against this hope that Paul fought. Though he professed with his mouth that God raises the dead, he rebels against the risen Christ. He was convinced, verse 11 says, that he should be doing many things against the name of Jesus. Paul was walking in darkness. He's walking in rebellion. He was suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. 
the hope that he and all the other Pharisees were waiting for had come? And his reaction was to deny and rebel. All who deny the risen Christ are in the darkness of rebellion. They're in rebellion, in personal rebellion against the personal triune God of the Bible. That's what Paul thinks. Look with me at verse 11. Paul says he tried to make them blaspheme. He wanted them to deny Christ. And he characterizes that as blasphemy. To, not, to deny Christ, Paul's saying, is to deny that he is God, the eternal, only begotten Son of the Father, and is to rebel against the only God who is. So although Paul thought he was a Jew of Jews, although he thought he was serving God, he was actually rebelling against him. And that rebellion drove him mad. Look again at verse 11. He describes himself as being in a raging fury against them. That word translated as raging fury, rightly translated that way, means mad, means out of your mind, insane. To deny the triune God of the Bible is insanity. Unbelief drives you mad. Denying reality never results in good. It's like trying to play basketball on a field where everyone else is playing football. It's not going to go well. Paul and Festus don't see eye to eye on this. If you look down towards the end at verse 24, towards the end of his speech, Festus interrupts Paul and says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning's driving you mad. So Festus sees Paul as a once respectable Jew whose now study has led him down a path towards the fringe of society. He's this crazy guy now. Festus was someone who thought Paul was kind of like maybe someone in our day who would spend way too much time in online chat rooms, buying into conspiracy theories, finding a little group, a little echo chamber, and now is radical and unhinged. That's how Festus sees Paul. But Paul sees himself as just the opposite. He describes his former way of life as mad. And now he's speaking true and rational words. As Jesus says, he was formerly kicking against the goads. Kicking against the goads. The goads, or pricks, as some translations say, were spikes that you'd put behind a cattle or donkey as they were plowing in your field. You'd prod them to get them going or get them going in the right direction. It's this long stick with a metal spike on the end of it. Sometimes, it was kind of a natural reaction for them, they'd kick back against it. Well, what would that accomplish? It would only stab them more. So to kick against the goads is an exercise in futility. To kick against the goads is an exercise in futility. It's like a, a dog with a choke collar. More rebellion just means more pain. Living contrary to reality is never good. It's never helpful. Denying reality to live your truth, contrary to God's truth, 
never leads to good. To deny the resurrection of Christ is to deny the very center point of all history, all reality itself, and will not lead to good. Paul was kicking against the goads of reality, history, of God's providence. Christ was establishing his church as he promised to do. The gates of hell were not prevailing against it. But Paul was this madman trying to fight that providence, trying to kick against reality and against the very God of that reality, the God who's actively involved in every moment of our lives and of history. Paul was a man raging in the dark, stumbling around with his eyes closed. He was so blind that the risen Christ could stand in front of him and he wouldn't have seen it. The fulfillment of the Pharisees' hope had come. The resurrection and life himself, Christ himself was being proclaimed to and around Paul. Paul heard Stephen preach Christ and he just plugged his ears. But by the grace of God, Paul was turned from his insanity. He was rescued from his rebellion. Paul was brought out of darkness and into light. With a blinding flash that made the noonday sun seem like a dim candle, Paul encounters the risen Christ. His eyes were blinded, and the eyes of his heart were miraculously opened. The Christ he couldn't see before was now unmissable. The sun of righteousness had risen on Paul. Notice also when Christ appears. He appears to Paul as he's on his way to persecute the church. So in this speech, as Nathan led us in a prayer of confession earlier, just like that, Paul's not trying to defend himself, make himself look good. He's not the good guy of this story. It's not about how he came to his senses. Paul finally figured out what was right. He didn't have a gradual shift in his system of morality. He was on the road of rebellion and was suddenly seized by Christ himself. He was miraculously converted by Christ. And his dark works were exposed. That's the first thing that happens to Paul. He sees the risen Christ and realizes that he wasn't a Jew of Jews. He was no Jew at all. He wasn't serving the God of Abraham. He was persecuting him. He wasn't worshiping rightly. He may have been worshiping sincerely from his heart, but he wasn't worshiping rightly. And sincere worship offered to anyone but this God is sincerely wrong. The risen Christ meets Paul and reveals his foolish rebellion. The risen Christ meets Paul on his way to persecute Christians, tells him he's persecuting the church. He's persecuting, as he persecutes the church, the Messiah himself. He tells him he's kicking against the goads. He's fighting the unstoppable providence of God. He reveals his rebellion. 
When Paul meets the risen Christ, he realizes he's been wrong. I wonder if that's been your experience with Christ. I wonder if the Word of God has shined light into your life, into your heart, shown you that you aren't as good as you thought. If that's ever been your experience, Paul wants you to know that you are not alone. That's every Christian's experience. The light of Christ first shows us how wrong we've been. But wonderfully, that's not where Christ leaves us. It's not where he leaves Paul. Christ next has a gracious word for Paul. He tells him that rather than stopping him in his persecution by striking him dead right there, which he could have done, he's going to pardon him, forgive his sin, change him from being a rebel to being an obedient servant. That he'd make him a messenger, a servant and witness, as verse 16 says. This, too, is every Christian's experience. By God's grace, Christians have been shown that they've spent their lives in spiritual darkness. We've sinned and rebelled against God. Every Christian's seen and confessed this. And every Christian's seen that Christ was crucified, was put to death for those very sins, for that rebellion, then was raised to life. Every Christian's had an encounter with the risen Christ. Not the same way Paul has, not in a vision, but in his word. Every Christian's encountered the risen Christ in his word. Either through reading the Bible on your own, through hearing it preached from a pulpit, from hearing it from a kind and helpful and true word from your friend or neighbor. Every Christian, those words of Christ that you have heard have worked by the Spirit of Christ so that you hear them for what they really are, the living words of the living Christ himself. You've heard Christ himself saying in real time, I am risen, I am alive, come to me and have life yourself. Come to me and be raised from death to life. Come to the light and be free from the horror of the darkness. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the message that saves people from sin and misery and darkness. That's the message that raises people to life. Paul saw his own conversion as nothing less than a resurrection. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, consider that this might be the light of Christ shining on your heart. These words you're hearing now, consider that by turning to Christ today, you too, like Paul, can be raised with Christ. Look at verse 23. Paul says that Christ will be the first to rise from the dead. Christian's hope in resurrection isn't just a general hope 
that will live forever. The Christian's hope is that Christ already has been raised, that all who are united to him by faith will certainly be raised with him. In a spiritual sense, you can be raised from the dead today. By believing in Christ, you can be given new life. You can be turned from your sin, from your rebellion, from the works that you're ashamed of, that you feel guilty about, that you hate that you do, but you just can't stop doing. You can be given new life today. And that new life will extend to eternity as you're raised up in a very physical sense as well on the last day. And your body, too, will be given new life, eternal life. This is the message of the gospel. It's centered on the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits of the resurrection of the body of Christ, his people. This is the good news that Paul's called to deliver, to bring to the Gentiles, the people of Israel, and the kings. And this is the message that we, the church, have also been commissioned to proclaim week in, week out, throughout our lives individually and our life together as a church. I want you to see this connection with me, this connection between Christ's mission, Paul's mission, and ours. Look at verses 16 through 18. Again, this is after Paul's been blinded by this light. You'll hear words similar to what we read in Ezekiel 2. As Ezekiel's called to stand to his feet, Jesus says to Paul, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus is taking language from Isaiah 42. Turn there with me. It's worth reading together to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 7. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. This is God in Isaiah talking about his purpose in calling Israel from among the nations. They've been called to be a light, to reveal truth, and even 
bring salvation to the nations around them living in darkness and immorality, in sinful rebellion. But it's Jesus who himself is the fulfillment of this promise. He's the light who's come into the world, the salvation of God, to open people's eyes, to free people from the power and prison of sin and Satan, to give eternal life. Luke records the words of Simeon when he sees the baby Jesus in Luke 2. Simeon calls Jesus a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus himself in John says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus, the light of the world, the rightful king of Israel, is the fulfillment of this promise from Isaiah. And then he's put on trial. They find him innocent. Pilate's clear about that. Find no guilt in this man but put him to death anyway. And it's through that innocent death that salvation, that light, is brought to the world, bringing light to darkness. And here in Acts, we have another innocent man on trial. He's there not to die as a substitute like Jesus did, but to proclaim the gospel of Jesus so that light might shine to others. Jesus commissions Paul as an extension of his own life-giving, light-bringing ministry. And now we, the church, are called to do the same. We've been saved, called for the very same purpose as Paul. From Christ to Paul to us, the church today. 1 Peter 2.9 says that you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christ came as light of the world. Paul was chosen to proclaim light to the world. And now we're saved and called to do the same thing. God has a purpose in saving us, a purpose that goes beyond just our own personal joy, it goes beyond our eternal life. It's a purpose of glorifying Him by seeing many turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that many might receive the forgiveness of sins and lead holy lives that are pleasing to God. And as more and more are saved, thanks and praise to God increase until the heavenly multitude reaches its full number. When we're not almost home, but home. God has a purpose in saving us. And that purpose is proclamation. We together as a church have been saved to proclaim His excellencies. We do so by imitating Paul in a few ways. Imitating Paul in a few ways that we see in this passage. First, we imitate his message. Look at verses 19 to 23. Follow along as I read. 
Paul's message? How does Paul respond to his calling? How should we? Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those at Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, what message did he have for them? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. We as a church must be committed to proclaiming the same message that Paul preached. We have to call people to turn from lives of darkness and rebellion toward God. We must preach a gospel that includes repentance. We must preach Christ from the whole Bible, showing that He's the fulfillment of all the promises and prophecies of God in the Old Testament. We're to preach His substitutionary suffering, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. We must proclaim, as Nathan preached a few weeks ago, the whole counsel of God centered on the resurrected Christ himself. And so, we must do so as messengers like Paul. We need to imitate his message. We have to imitate Paul's innocence. If we're to be credible witnesses, we must imitate Paul's innocence. Our lives and our life together will either support or undermine the message we preach. So are we, like Paul, able to point to our own lives as evidence of God's miraculous saving grace? Is there any difference between our old life and our new life? Is there any difference in the way that we love one another and the way the rest of the world interacts with one another? I'll repeat the question that Nathan asked at the members meeting last week. What part of our church covenant do you find hardest to uphold? That's a faithful summary, we're saying, of a life together in Christ. What part do you find hardest to uphold? Are we pursuing faithfulness and innocence in order to uphold Christ's message? Lastly, we have to imitate Paul's dependence, his dependence on the risen Lord. To this day, he says, I have had the help that comes from God. Church, we've been saved for a purpose. We've been called to proclaim a message. We've been called to live holy, innocent lives that support that message. But we do so with the help of the Lord. The good news of the gospel isn't that we've been commanded to live a certain way. Then God stands far off waiting to see if we will live that way. If we'll do it. The good news of the gospel is that God is for us and with us in Christ as our help. 
the good news of the gospel is that we've been united to Christ, to the risen Christ, who lives and reigns with power, who pours out his spirit to give life to dead men and women like me and you. The risen Christ empowers us to live as he lived. And we with Paul have already been raised to life together with Christ. We've been, as Paul says, crucified together with him and raised up with him. We've been, as Paul says, united to him by faith. In him, Paul says, we've been set free from the power of Satan. And we, as Paul says, can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. The light of the risen Christ has dawned. The sun of righteousness has risen. And just like the sun that lights up the world also supplies what plants need to grow and to bear fruit, in that same way, Christ has not only given us light so that we can see the way we should go, but he also gives us life that we can go that way. By the light we see, by his light we live, we're strengthened, we grow together as a church into a body that proclaims the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. You are light. Your light has shone in Christ, risen from the dead. These things have not been done in a corner. Thank you not only that you have made them known externally, but you have shown your light in our hearts by your Spirit. Help us, Lord, to live by your Spirit, to know your gospel, to proclaim it, to live in light of it, in full and total dependence on you. Thank you for the grace that you supply. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.